Welcome to the latest episode of All Car Radio. If you're here just to find out about our latest deals, please skip to 2315. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. Today's episode is going to focus on a study we conducted and reported not long ago, which we called Homeward Hound. We did this study a while ago, back in February, and with a new podcast here, we thought it would be the perfect opportunity to take a retrospective look and discuss the findings as an episode so that more people may be able to find it and offer a more convenient way to learn about the study and what we've taken from it. From time to time, we create what we call featured articles, which are in-depth, journalistic-style articles, which takes the subject related to the automotive industry and goes into a lot more detail than our standard blogs. We usually do something like this about once a month, and you can find all of the ones that we've done in the past by following the show notes or by going to the blog on our website which is allcarleasing.co.uk. We do these because we like to give back to the automotive industry whenever we can with new insights not found elsewhere. It's these sorts of articles many of our readers have given us a great feedback on. We also want to produce the sort of content that visitors who may not be interested in just leasing a vehicle from us would enjoy. So a bit of introduction to Home and Hell itself. We're a very dog friendly company with most of the employees at the office being owners of at least one dog. I myself have a little Jack Russell pug cross named Jeff who I regularly have with me in the car on journeys. It was when I was planning a trip to my homeland of Wales that I started to wonder what the proper way is to travel with a dog and how other people do it. You often see dogs with their heads sticking out of the car windows uh, loving life but I wasn't keen on that approach and I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do either. So when I got back into the office I pitched this idea of the study looking into this as a next feature article. Here we are now to discuss the results of the survey. The initial goal was to find out what the best cars for dogs is and we will mention a couple of our examples uh, towards the end of it but it involved into a full-blown study. At the time and still to this day I think Homerdown is the only article of its kind that looks into these sort of things. If this study or the podcast itself is of interest to you, please feel free to refer to it and to give us feedback as well. We've had quite a few blogs on the internet who have picked up on the study and the accompanying infographic and it's been great to see some of the feedback they and their own audiences have given them on how to travel with dogs in the future. As is the case with all of our studies, we worked on getting a series of questions that we believe will help us get a picture of what the general population do with the dogs. We surveyed 1,216 dog owners from the UK and put seven questions in front of them, all of which probe into how to take a dog with them on a car journey. If they do at all, the people we surveyed were independent and not customers or affiliated with all in any way. This episode is more of a companion to the study, so if you've already read the blog, then it's probably not going to be much new information for you here, but you may be interested to hear what our actual opinions and interpretations of the results were. So, let's just begin. So, as you can probably guess, I am the host for this podcast. My name's Ronnie, and with me, again, I've got Chris and Richard. Hello. Hi. So, let's go straight into it. Question number one that we asked in the survey was if people let their dog in the car at all. Out of the 1,216 people we surveyed, 21% said that they didn't. That's 250 people. Did we think that this was a surprising statistic at all? Not to me. I mean, personally, I'm one of those people that doesn't let the dog in the car. Uh, not my new car, anyway. Of course, I have done in the past, taking it to the vets and stuff. But. I can understand why for some people, because cleaning their car is a chore. And if they can avoid this by not allowing a dog in their car, then for me, it makes sense. A follow-up question to the people that don't let their dog in the car is, why do they not let the dog in the car? And 36% said that it was because of dog hairs. 28% said it was because of dog smell and those two added together is 49% so pretty much half of the people that don't let a dog in the car is because of well, hygiene reasons pretty much the other 51% said a lack of space for the dog 29% of them worries about safety 15% and their seats being destroyed 10% and lastly being worried about barking or silly behaviour by the dog was 7% so anything surprising or anything that you want to say about this question and the answers for me it's the smell and the hair to be honest with you I mean I love my dog but I hate the way he smells 
especially after he's been for a walk. So I completely understand why yeah. he wouldn't let them in your car. It's just hard to get rid of. But dog smell lingers, that's the thing. So if you let your dog in the car at autumn, winter, or maybe even spring when it's been even slightly raining, dog smell will linger in your car forever and ever. And for, for anyone who's got a dog, especially the breeds that have a molting fur, will know that dog hairs don't just come off quite easily. They're quite difficult to get rid of so even if you made the effort of cleaning it you won't get them all and I suppose the stigma may not be that they're worried about the dog hairs for themselves but if they're going to pick up any passengers or whatever or maybe if they've got a carpool or something like that dog hair is a major inconvenience for other people to stick on them and it puts them off asking for a lift or anything like that at all and I think maybe it's a bit embarrassing for the driver and that's why they don't let the dog in the car at all but that's my interpretation of those statistics yeah, anyway just getting out covered in dog hair the one thing I found a bit surprising was People who are worried about the barking or silly behaviour or distraction from the dog was only 7%. And personally, I have a dog who I do let in the car, to be fair, but he does distract me quite a bit. And I thought that that number would be a lot higher. But that's my takeaway. Anyway, Richard, what, what did you think of those answers? I agreed with pet hair, dog smell and the car being damaged. For me, are all reasonable excuses. But one thing that we didn't ask is if the person needed to take their dogs in the car. So what was the reason? for that some people may have to take the pet to the vet in another car or walk i know that my local vet is only half a mile away so even when the dog had injured its paw i was perfectly fine to carry it or to let the dog walk so that saves time trying to get the dog in and out of the car and for that reason i typically won't drive with the dog to be honest that's some really good feedback here suck because i've written some stuff here on how we can improve homeward hound if we were to do a, a second study and one of them would be of the people that don't let their dogs in the car how would they take them to the vet obviously you've just given me an example there they, they live close enough to the vet so maybe a lot of dog owners pick vets at a walking distance on purpose but i would love to know of the people that may not have a vet that's walking distance how do they ever do that do they have a second car for example that is specifically for that so although i think that the study overall was, was quite good i think we could have explored this question a bit more on the second study but anyway that, that's the first question out of the way nothing too surprising interesting but not surprising surprising I think. Our next question moves on to the people that do let their dogs in the car which is 79% of the total respondents. We asked them when driving where do you put the dog in the car? So 69% of respondents uh, that's 69% of the people that do place toy slash small dogs such as Jack Russells and the like in the front. 57% of medium breeds such as Spaniels put them in the rear. And 78% of much larger breeds such as Labradors, Golden Retrievers put them in their boot. What do we make of this? Anything surprising? Surprised I expect the majority of all the dog owners to just put the dog in the front of the car. I mean, to be fair, it depends how many dogs you're actually travelling with. So if I just owned one dog and I wasn't travelling with a passenger, chances are my dog would probably be on the front seat should I let my dog in the car. But mm. it's normally when I'm travelling with a family or if my dad goes to vets with the dog, etc. It would just be the dog and my dad and the dog would just sit freely on the passenger side. Yeah. I was surprised that most did not put the dog in the boot, but the size of the dog relative to where it was in the car was fairly logical. Yeah, I mean, with this question... I felt a little bit let down because the results were as I predicted. So when we got uh, all these survey questions back and I, I crunched the numbers, I wasn't surprised. This is probably what I guessed, but I suppose it did confirm what we thought. I suppose for anyone who's listening of a toy small, medium or large breed, do these stats correlate with what you do with them? I have, like I mentioned in the introduction, I have a, a Jack Russell Pug Cross who is a toy slash small dog and he does sit in the front if I'm driving with my baby. But if I'm driving on my own, he's in the back 
back. So I suppose that's another place where we could improve the study next time. And the other question that I wish I would have asked was how exactly the dog was positioned in the front rear or the boot. So are they on a bed? Are they in a crate? So even if you have a toy small dog and then they're in a crate, a crate probably couldn't fit in the front. So I probably would have been very interested to know how many toy small dog owners keep the dog in a crate versus medium and large, for example. But overall, it was as we expected and it, and it confirmed our suspicions. So it did serve a purpose, but it was a bit of a boring statistic to receive back. Yeah. The question that we asked and the answers that we were given that really created the, the most amount of feedback from the people who covered this study is, is your dog restrained when you drive? And the surprising thing is one in three dog owners drove with a dog unrestrained. And for anyone who's listening, unrestrained means there's, they're not attached to anything. They are pretty much free roaming. So what do we make of that? One in three, that's 33%. It's a decision that only you as an owner can really make because if you trust your dog to behave, say if you pass another dog, most dogs tend to go ape and start barking, going erratic. So if you trust your dog to be on its best behaviour when it's sat in your passenger seat, for example, then fair enough, I can understand that. But most of the times, personally, whenever I've um, taken my dog, it's normally been in a crate just on the way to the vet. So I, I would never have that problem, but I would never normally travel with my dog with me anyway. I suppose being in a crate would probably class as being restrained mm. in, in my head just because they are sort of within a little bubble. Um, Richard what did you make of that? I was quite surprised to find out that there was a lot of people that didn't restrain their dog at all and I think the biggest issue with our question was the generic term restrained or unrestrained. I think that some people may not have realised the immediate risk posed to their pet or to themselves by having a dog unrestrained and I think we've changed a few opinions. Yeah absolutely the first I keep my dog restrained whether it's in the front or the back I've got this little lead that clips into the seatbelt for the front and I've got a car seat cover in the back that has a lead in it as well that then attached to a harness but what I think a lot of people may not realise if they listen to this with a dog unrestrained is you shouldn't restrain them for yourself to stop them from annoying you if you have an impact or a collision of that kind there's nothing to stop your dog from being flown by the force of that collision and they will be much worse off than if they weren't restrained so obviously in your head before a journey you never expect to be in a crash or anything like that at all but if you were and your dog was unrestrained they aren't going to be as protected if they're not restrained but also what we looked at after we got the results is if you were in in an accident and the investigation found that it was caused by a dog distracting you because they're unrestrained then the liability of that collision is yours because there's evidence that you were distracted by something that you could have stopped from being distracted almost in the same way as being on your phone it's your choice to go on your phone to allow yourself the opportunity to be distracted just like if you have a dog in your car and you've chosen not to restrain the dog and it's ended up distracting you then you, you've pretty much you've made the conditions right for you to have an accident oh yeah I didn't think of that so I, was, I suppose our feedback from this study and what a lot of the blogs that covered it the angle was you know you could be facing a fine you could be facing points on your licence or you're putting your dog's health at risk by not doing something that is dead simple to do this lead thing that I've got that links into the seatbelt is less than a tenner my dog seat cover on the back I think is about between 10 to 20 pounds and not only that but the 
dog seat cover also protects it from the pet hair as well. So definitely this was probably the best question that we got in terms of interesting feedback. And I don't think we could have improved this question really. Our next series of questions looks more towards the vehicles and the owner as opposed to the dog. We asked them, have you ever bought a car and taken the dog into consideration before you make a purchase? And I think this is a really interesting statistic that 62% said yes. That means that more than half of the people who have dogs and take their dogs in their car have considered the dog's needs before making a purchase. What do we make of this? It does make sense if you're shopping for like a new daily driver, like a family car, though. Not if you're buying your second car. It's more likely going to be, say, a sports car or like a lifestyle kind of car. If you're going camping, for instance. But it makes sense. Richard? Yeah, I think dog breeds also identify different types of lifestyles. And although some who answered this may prioritise their pet when considering the car, others, I think, will have chosen the car suited to their lifestyle. Mm. And their pet falls into that as well. I see what you mean, yeah. So, for example, people with sheep dogs and spaniels and stuff like that, high-energy dogs, probably go out a lot because for them to get an, to get a decent amount of exercise to fit their breeds, they've got to go out. I and mean, if they live in a city centre, that's not good enough for those type of breeds. It's a really good point. I never thought of that. My uh, initial thought of this is, obviously, as a dog owner myself, a dog isn't a pet. It's a member of the family. So you treat your dog almost as well as you would treat your own children. And I think that's probably why they would take into consideration anyone who's probably listening to this who has a dog will probably agree with that that the dog is you know you really care about your dog so you wouldn't just buy a car that just isn't suited for your dog would you because you wouldn't buy a car that isn't suited for your kids in the same way and that's pretty much where I took of it 62% I suppose in hindsight that does make sense maybe it should have been a bit higher I think our argument on this is chicken and eggs so my point of view is that they buy the car with their lifestyle and the dog suits that as well mm. yours is more that they have a dog and they they buy the car that suits their lifestyle as well as the dog. Yeah, I suppose a lot of people wouldn't even get dogs in the first place if it didn't match the sort of lifestyle they have or the lifestyle they want to get. I suppose a lot of people who live in possibly inner city London and Manchester and those type of big cities, they don't have dogs at all because it's not appropriate for that type of living conditions. But if you were to live in a bit more suburban area, then a dog is more likely to be a part of that lifestyle. And I suppose the car would match that. You've also got to consider that people may already have their cars and the dog is like a new like, addition to their family so that might be why they've not considered you know like needs of a dog because they may not, may not have owned the dog yet and I suppose for some breeds that aren't really demanding dogs like mine for example I don't need a crossover or an SUV or something like that to ferry my dog around so did I personally think about my dog when I leased my golf no I didn't because I knew any car would have fit that dog so at first I've written down here that could I have improved this question and I haven't got any improvements but on the, on the feedback of this discussion it's quite clear that we could have expanded it a bit more so we could should have asked them well of the people that did say yes to this question you know what car did they have okay let's move on to the next question the next question we asked them literally was that what kind of car do you drive out of our respondents 27 percent drive hatchbacks 22 percent drive crossovers 10 percent drive suvs 9 percent drive saloons 19 percent drive estates and 13 percent drive coupes, MPVs or convertibles. Did this surprise anyone? I expect to talk more hatchbacks to be honest with you because for the most part hatchbacks are sort of the most popular car in the UK so as we mentioned before whether you know the dog came first or you know before your choice of car I 
figured a lot more hatchback owners would fall into that category. Mm. But I suppose crossovers are becoming increasingly more popular. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. The results for me are in line with the new car market and so weren't that surprising. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't think this question provided that much value. I think it reflected just generic purchasing values. I think that the one thing I suppose I would mention is because a point I raised earlier about um, a toy small or a medium breed dog, hatchback is probably good enough for them. But otherwise, um, plus hatchback is actually quite a broad term. So mm. a Volkswagen Up is technically a hatchback, but so is an A-Class. And that's quite a, a difference in terms of size. Yeah. But I think, I suppose... The only thing I could have improved for that question is uh, maybe take city car outside of hatchback and put it into its own section just to see what that sort of looked like. But other than that, um, the only thing I think I should have done was could we have asked them how many cars that they actually have in the household? We've made an assumption here. What kind of a car do you drive, not what cars do you have in the household? We touched on this earlier. Do people have one car for work? one car for other things such as moving around dogs i think if we were to make home with hound 2 probably would ask that otherwise nothing surprising just confirming what we thought and it would be quite realistic for sort of generic families to have two cars yeah I, I have two cars, but they're both hatchback, so my answers wouldn't wouldn't change that, really. One way that I would like to improve that question was to inquire about the make, model, and possibly trim. I think that would have been interesting for us to be able to yeah. drill down Do these people who own dogs and put them in certain places own mm. leather trims, or do they already own a large SUV, small SUV, crossovers, large or small hatchbacks? Yeah, I suppose we could have... Sorry, I suppose we could have found out what is the most popular brand uh, of car for dog owners or what is least popular or, or, or whatever. In our second to last question, we asked them, when considering your dog's needs when purchasing a car, what is the most desirable feature? And the top three were a large boot, easy boot access, and that means either a lip or sort of a lowered boot, and quality seats. What do we make of these? Well, considering the large market out there for pet supplies and pet accessories, I was surprised by the lack of special equipment like Nissan's pre-installed dog shower or Land Rover's pet pack that includes ramps. The results were what I would consider for my next car anyway, regardless of my dog, really. I was surprised how much boot space and boot access played you know, such a large role in like being a desirable feature. I figured it'd be interior space rather than you know the, the back of the car that'd be a priority for people. Not necessarily like the quality of the interior, because you know scratchy plastics, etc., might actually come in handy when cleaning the car. When dog dog marks and stuff on your windows and black plastic trims would be a bit easier to clean off. But no, I'm, I'm surprised that the focus was on uh, boot space. Right. So here's a theory I've got. So when you consider the second question, or when we asked them where do where do they put the dog in the car, and most people, if you add up toy and small breeds and medium breeds in one, most of them would either put them in the front or the rear, making the boot not where the dog would go. And my theory is large boot is desirable to carry the stuff because the dog takes the space in the rear. So if you've got bags and stuff when you're going on a trip, the dog's going to take the space. So you need this boot, boot to put luggage in as opposed to actually putting a dog. But obviously mixed in with those are the people that actually put the dogs in the back. But I think large boot 
is for cargo as opposed to the dog. And I think if you can mirror that with sort of the behaviour of people who have babies in the car. You know, large boot is desirable for people with babies in the car, not to put the baby in the boot, <laughs> but to carry it the pram and all the paraphernalia that comes with being a parent. Definitely. I mean, quality seats, I feel like I should have asked that in a bit more specific. What do they mean by quality seats? Is it tougher seats? Is it leather? Because obviously dogs could wreck the seat. Therefore, tougher seats would make sense. But I feel like I wish I could have asked them a bit more about what they mean by quality. But again, with any study, you can't get it right first time. But that's just one of the things I wish I could have asked differently to find out a little bit more. Our last question it asks them, what's your favourite car-related dog accessory? And I suppose this one's for a lot of people who maybe are thinking about buying a dog or currently do travel with a dog but think that they're not doing it quite right. In the top three, in order, is a mesh guard. So like a wire mesh frame in the back seats that keeps them there but it's not quite a crate. A clip-in harness, which is similar to what I've got but it has the harness built in and seat and boot liners do you have any of these or what what do you, what do you think i think my favorite is a cage it just makes things so much simpler you know they're confined to one space they've got a little bit of room no mess is going to get on the outside and you can put a little towel in there for them to sit on as well just to keep hair at bay i mean i've never traveled enough to warrant having a clipping harness or anything like that or seat covers so that's why i'd stick with just a crate it's fine by me do you know the one thing that i can't believe isn't in the top three is a seat cover i can't believe i didn't make it because one of the biggest complaints is dog hairs a seat cover literally helps protect that maybe no one actually buys dedicated seat covers and just puts like a throw and an old towel etc in the back of the car yeah yeah do you know what? Good, good point i never thought about that yeah because i've got a dedicated one but i suppose um, a blanket would do the same thing richard i agree with chris although it wasn't nominated by our audience i know that there's a boot crate that has been designed to fix to the anchor points in the boot this makes it more secure and in the event of an accident, it can prevent injury as well as stop the crate from sliding around the boot if you have hard surface. Yeah, brilliant. And that is pretty much the end of the study that we've, we've covered here. If you were to go on that website and read the full blog, it is a bit more in-depth than what we've covered today. But obviously, we think that that podcast would have been a bit boring if we went to absolute detail. The link to the study called Homeward Hound is in our show notes. So if you wanted to learn more and or see the infographic that we designed for it, then just check out the link in the show notes. On the back of these results, we came up with a short list of uh, cars that we feel are more suited to the dog's than others. Obviously, most cars are fine to have dogs in, but we just got a short list of the ones that we think just pip most of them to the top. To cover this section, Richard, do you want to take over? Certainly. Our first choice was the hatchback. We chose the Kia Seed because it's available with a boot liner or lap optional extra and has a particularly large boot, especially for a five-door hatchback. Secondly, we chose the Peugeot Rifter for our best MPV for dogs simply because it has one of the largest luggage capacities, a low sill for easy access, and Peugeot's magic flat system available on the GT line trim, which quickly folds the rear seat's expanding boot space. Next up, we chose the Volvo XC60, not only for its amazing safety features, but also its ample rear legroom and boot, which combined offer 1,444 litres of space for pets. A competitive category was crossovers. Our winner for its big boot and range of dog-friendly accessories is the Kia Sportage. Choosing an estate was also difficult due to the large selection of cars from almost every manufacturer, most of which were of a muchness. 
the Audi A6 Avant picked its rivals for our best in class. A less common category for dog owners due to the vehicle configuration is the saloon. Our choice is the Volkswagen Passat, which we chose for its large boot and variable boot floor. Thanks for that, Richard. And now it's over to Chris, who's going to give us an update on some of the best deals that we've got going on right now. As a disclaimer, as usual, please check the date of this podcast as our deals are usually time sensitive. And if you're listening to this a few weeks or, or more after the episode, the deals are probably not available anymore. So just check before you go ahead. Thank you. All right. So this week, we've had a really strong offer arrive on the set layout. Uh, specifically the SE Dynamic model, which is uh, the 1.5 litre petrol engine. It's the trim above the entry level, so with £1,000 upfront payment on a two-year deal with 10,000 miles, the monthly payment would be about £170 a month. So if you're thinking of dipping your feet in the water with leasing and looking to get rid of your current family car, it's a pretty good deal and a very affordable way into having a brand new car. Even though it's only the model above the entry level, it's not particularly short on spec, I think the SE Dynamic models include things like sat-nav, front and rear parking sensors, cruise controls, as well as the usual things like aircon, alloys, Bluetooth, etc. The second deal we've got is the Golf GTD. Uh, of course, it's significantly more expensive than the Leon, coming in at £360 a month with 1100 deposit on the same terms as the Leon. Alternatively, you could opt for a higher initial payment and instead pay 2635 up front to bring the monthlies to 292 which is a little bit more affordable. Uh, the GTDs we have on offer are all automatic models, but the choice of paint will be uh, quite limited as the GTD deals don't typically stay around for very long. As you can imagine, it's quite a popular car given the mix of performance and fuel economy. It's really good daily driver, especially if you're doing lots of motorway miles. Uh, but those are the two main deals we've got this week. Bear in mind with Leeson, it's best to strike while the iron's hot to avoid any disappointment. But if you're listening to this episode any time in the future, check out the links in the show notes just to keep an eye on our current rates just to see if the deal is still available or whether you can uh, pursue the current deal. Thanks very much, Chris. And that pretty much wraps up this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please rate us five stars and please subscribe if you want to hear more from us. And we look forward to having you on the next episode. Thank you very much.